Father in heaven, what a glorious God you are. And indeed, Father, we need to behold you. We need to think about you. We need to meditate on you. We need to exalt you. We need to praise you. We need to thank you. We need to bless you. And Father, I pray that you will be glorified even right now as we turn to your word. Lord, may you give us good and deep conviction. May you help us to understand. May you help us to apply it. That we might grow in godliness. That we might grow in Christ-likeness. And Lord, certainly for our good, but even more so for your glory. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when I am putting together my illustrations and and oftentimes my kind of opening uh, illustration... Oh, I do so a myriad of ways. Sometimes I will recall something that happened in my own life or in my family's life, and I'll, I'll use that. Uh, sometimes it might be something from somebody else's life uh, that I can use, or uh, I will read books and come up with illustrations or go online. There's all different kinds of preaching illustration sites and, and uh, things uh, on my computer, and you... Last night was one of those where I was putting in the, the, my last illustration here, which was the opening, and, and uh, I, I just wasn't coming up with anything, and, and so then I'm scrolling through and I'm reading illustration after illustration after illustration, you're just kind of waiting for that one to just kind of pop, and, and uh, finally, finally, uh, after like, I don't know, it seemed like an hour of doing this, uh, I found one, and I thought, ooh, that's good, because last week we started off with a car illustration, so this, with the guy pushing and helping the... the, the uh, the father and his sons push the car up the hill. Well, this is another car illustration, so, so there's some consistency from last week. Uh, last week, we talked about sanctifying uh, others, and this week, it's sanctify yourself. <clears throat> it turns out there's a missionary by the name of Dr. Herbert Jackson. He was a missionary to the Philippines in the 20th century, and he tells a story about something that happened to him when he was just getting started out on the mission field. He was given a car, but the car wouldn't start unless it had a push. So he quickly devised different ways of getting the car started without himself having to push it. For instance, he might park the car on the hill, and I assume it means like he, you know, popped the clutch or something like that. Or he would just flat out leave it running until he needed it next. Uh, One time he even went to a school near his home and he got the children of the school out to help push the car and get it started. And he did this for two years. Then finally a new missionary showed up and Dr. Jackson was showing him the car and he was proudly explaining all of the creative methods that he came up with to to get the car started. And while he was talking, this this new missionary fella looks under the hood. He sees that the problem is a loose cable. He tightens it, turns on the ignition, and guess what? The car starts. For two years... Needless trouble had become routine for Dr. Jackson. 
he had become satisfied to make do with this car in the condition that it was in. And yet the power was there all the time. It was just this loose connection that kept Jackson from putting the power to work. Friends, is this not like us sometimes, even as believers? Sometimes we can become just simply too satisfied with our Christian lives. The the status quo of our Christian walk or the Christian walk just starts to become comfortable for us. Or maybe we even start to get complacent and even lazy and we just think oh ah i'm 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 happy with how things are going frankly it would just be too much work to you know change things up or or do something different you know and 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 we forget that we have this amazing incredible power source the holy spirit that is actually living where inside of us to help make us go right it's not even us then that has to kind of push ourselves the holy spirit is there to do the hard work give us the power and so this morning i want to challenge all of us to get out of our comfy satisfied sometimes complacent or lazy christian walks tighten up that that power cable in us, get that car running good and not just settling for the status quo. So with that, please go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where we will pick up in verse 16. Go ahead and stand, please. For Actually, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just turn there first. I'll have you standing too long here. (laughs) As Paul closes out his first letter to the the Thessalonians, we last week looked at what you can and should be doing, as we said, to sanctify others, help others in their sanctification, those being in the church. And in fact, Paul gave us six surefire sanctifiers last week. One was to live in peace with one another, admonish the unruly, Third was encourage the faint-hearted. Four, help the weak. Five, be patient with everyone. And six, don't repay evil with evil, but rather do good. And this week, Paul moves on to what you can and should be doing now to sanctify yourself. And so while the last six were others-centered, this week, it's all about you. And you go, oh, I like that. Me, 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 me. It's all about, yes, we're going to talk about me. I like me. You know, well, you know what? We, we might not like me so much, you know, when we're done with this morning. Because uh, as you will see, what Paul's getting at here might just require you to do a little bit of surgery on yourself. Some heart surgery may be required. Now you may stand for the reading of God's word. Paul says this to the Thessalonian believers, beginning in chapter 5, verse 16, Rejoice always. 
Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we've said many times regarding Paul's letter, these commands are both good for us as individuals as well as for a church congregation. The fact is, we can't expect us as a church body to be living out these commands if we first aren't living them out individually in our own lives. The whole is going to only be as good as the individual Parts. Now, I might need to check this with, with Brad Kelly, but if every instrument in an orchestra is out of tune, you are never going to make a good sound. Is, is that reasonable? He's going with good, good, good. Okay. So then I would just assume then as, as instruments start to tune up and get into tune, the sound starts getting better. And once everybody is in tune, what happens? Magic, right? Magic. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Great things start happening. The point of this, we need to first start getting our own individual hearts in tune with what Paul is telling us here as, or so that then we can do great things together as a congregation, all for God's kingdom, all for, of course, God's glory. Now, direct from the Apostle Paul then, Here are eight more surefire sanctifiers for your own heart so that you and I, us as a whole, we can do great things for the kingdom of God as a sanctified congregation. A congregation that is growing more and more each day into the image of the Lord Jesus. And the first is very simple. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Back in verse 16. Now, grammatically speaking, this is an important one. It's a present active imperative. And the reason I tell you that is so you understand that a present active imperative means then that this is a command of God and it is an ongoing, always continual command. It literally means at all times be rejoicing. In other words, there is never to be a time that you are not joyful. You go, (laughs) hello, pastor. You ever hear of something called life? Life is not always joyful. Very true. It's not. Circumstances are not always joy-filled. People are also not always joy-filled. Filled or a blessing to us. Not every person that comes into your life brings joy. Some, in fact, bring sorrow. And some bring difficulties. And some bring pain. So therefore, we think, okay, so God must not be talking about always rejoicing because of circumstances or people. So what is he getting at? Well, when we consider the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we see that joy is Second on the list, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. This tells us then that the kind of joy that Paul is referring to when he commands us to rejoice always is actually a supernatural joy that can only come from God. 
and his Holy Spirit. It is a joy that is not born out of circumstance or people, but it is a joy that grows and matures from the Holy Spirit, again, that lives in each one of us. It is a joy because of what we we know to be true about God, His Son, His Spirit, which include His promises to us, promises of our salvation, promises of our sanctification, and promises of our glorification. Rejoice always is nothing Unique to the New Testament, back in Deuteronomy 12, verse 18, God tells his people through his servant Moses, quote, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. End quote. And they would undertake a lot, wouldn't they? Go ahead and turn to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, Old Testament, uh, minor prophet there. Habakkuk is between Nahum and And Zephaniah, you just kind of have to work your way back there. Work your way back. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3. And uh, I want to show you verses 17 to 19. This is a a section that's called kind of the prayer of Habakkuk, where where the prophet is is praying and, and just demonstrating joy... Amidst trial and difficulty, again, Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. He prays this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, that would be a bad thing, by the way, right? The fig tree not blossoming. And there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the Fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. These are not good things, right? Just make sure we understand. Verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Did you get that? Even though the worst of the worst could be could be happening to us in our lives, yet we still rejoice. Why? Because we have this God of our salvation who saves us, who is our strength, who keeps our feet steady. Now there's reasons, other reasons for joy and situations of suffering. You might remember that after the apostles were jailed and then flogged, and, a, and I just double-checked that, you know, a flogging was when you were beaten or scourged, but literally so as to have skin removed. They were flogged by the Jewish council. They were told not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then Luke writes in Acts 5, verse 41, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, that's those uh, that had been flogged, the, the apostles, rejoicing, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his, Jesus' name. That's remarkable. James tells us to have joy in trials. 
Because the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance produces spiritual maturity. That is a reason to be joyful and to rejoice. Peter tells us in in 1 Peter 1 to greatly rejoice in the surety of your salvation even while being distressed by various trials because this proves your faith is real and it will in the end result in praise, glory, and honor for you. You at Jesus' return. How does this play out in real life? It means you might be down, but God provides joy. You might be suffering, but you also have joy in your soul because the Lord puts it there Himself. You might have received the worst news imaginable, but joy is still rooted in your being because... Of the Spirit. You may be sorrowful, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. There is some serious truth to the children's Bible song I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my what? Heart. Down in my heart to stay. (laughs) Friends, God's desire for you is to have joy in your life. As Paul wrote in Romans 14, verses 17 and 18, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in the upper room, before his arrest, prayed to the Father on the disciples' behalf, quote, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And while your joy, friends, is indeed a work of the Holy Spirit, we are also, as we have learned, commanded to rejoice always. How how do you do that? There's umpteen things. I'm going to just quickly give you five, five kind of quickie ways to cultivate this joy in your life. One, recognize that God is sovereign. God is sovereign and he is the one in control of all things. The big things on the world stage and and yes, things in Ukraine, but also things right here at home and things with you in your life. He is sovereign. Secondly, confess and repent of sin. I would venture to say that when we harbor sin in our heart, you usually do not feel very joyful. Thirdly, draw close to God and His Son. Right, Cultivate that relationship through the Word with God the Father, God the Son, through His Spirit and the Word. Fourthly, be active in the life of your local church, Calvary Bible Church. Be an active participant here. Not just on Sunday morning, but all the times in between. And fifthly, keep an eternal perspective. Keep your focus not so much on the here and now, but on what's to 
come. These are just some ways to help cultivate that joy so that you indeed can rejoice always. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Fruitful Life, says, quote, To be joyless, to be joyless is to dishonor God and to deny his love and his control over our lives. It is practical atheism. To be joyful is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit within us and to say to a watching world, our God reigns. End quote. Secondly, on our list of surefire sanctifiers, the first three we're taking a little more time with, and we'll speed up a little bit when we get to the, the back end there. Pray without ceasing. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. You may have heard that this means that you should have this, this attitude of prayer in your life. And we would say wholeheartedly, yes, indeed, absolutely. But what else might we learn from this phrase? Along with without ceasing, it can also be understood as permanently, continually, continually or without intermission. Sometimes it's helpful to understand what something does not mean Paul is not telling you that that prayer should be the only thing to ever occupy your mind or days for instance when Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you he doesn't mean that he has his his head bowed uh, hands folded eyes closed and is literally literally playing praying minute by minute 24 7 it means that praying on their behalf for god to bring paul there is a major prayer priority for paul and likewise for us to pray without ceasing means that prayer is 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 elevated in the realm of importance to us in our lives that it is of utmost importance. And this being the case, then again, yes, we should live with this attitude of prayer, just kind of constant always in our lives. We should always be praying to the Lord or, or constantly, you know, or at, at every moment we might think to. And sometimes those are going to be short prayers. I think of, to me, one of the shortest prayers, Nehemiah's prayer. He's going to, to the king to ask permission of the king to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And he's on his way and he prays in his mind in just a split second, a very short prayer before he starts speaking the words to the king. And of course, we see extended prayers such as from our, our Lord Jesus when he would go and spend all night in prayer to the Father, and yes, everything in between, friends. They should be a part of our, 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 our Christian walks. Jesus himself taught us to pray. You can start there. You can, how about say it with me? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
Yeah, I like that second forever. I had a pastor growing up and he would always put in that forever and ever. Amen. And, and maybe the better question then for us this morning is, is to consider briefly why. Why pray? What's the point? And oh my goodness, could we not do a sermon series on, on that subject alone for weeks and weeks? But we don't have weeks and weeks right now, and so this will have to suffice. Let's first just answer this. What is prayer? And in the simplest of understandings, prayer is two-way communication with God, right? We talk to God, but we also listen to God. We listen to God through his word and certainly the Holy Spirit. And in talking to God, we just saw, for instance, the Lord's prayer or disciples prayer, however you want to you know, look at that. And, and we, we saw several aspects of prayer from that. But just to keep it even really simple this morning, let's just say, look at three components, three major components of prayer. There is, of course, praise and thanksgiving, adoration to God. Secondly, there is our confessing of our sin to God. And thirdly, there is asking God to supply our needs or to supply for the needs of others. And regarding the purpose of prayer, and again, for simplicity's sake, just consider these two key purposes. One, prayer builds your relationship between you and the Lord. Jeremiah 9 and verse 24 tells us that it's God's desire for us to understand and know Him. Not know about Him, but actually know Him personally. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, how does any relationship? Well, through, through relationship. That is how we get to know any person personally. By forming a relationship with Him that, of course, starts with His Son and acknowledging Christ as your Savior and Lord. Jesus is, of course, the gateway to the Father. As Jesus makes perfectly clear in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. How do we come to him? That's the gospel, right? That's the good news of Jesus. That, that as Tim mentioned earlier, we are sinners who need a savior. And of course, God has provided this savior in his son, the Lord Jesus, who came to earth and lived that perfect life that we should have lived but never could live. That he would die in our place, taking our sin upon himself. That he would go into the ground, but three days later he would resurrect from the dead. And by putting our faith and trust in what he did to accomplish this then, our forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we we believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, not have the consequences of their sin, namely death, Hell, the lake of fire, but instead would be saved. Then how does this relationship grow then that we now have with God? Again, as any human relationship grows through communication, through spending time with one another, hence prayer. And then secondly, we also see from the scriptures that prayer is one of the ways that God advances his kingdom. It's one of the ways that he, he moves his kingdom 
forward here on earth. Consider the fact that God chooses to use you and I in the outworking of his will. This is an extraordinary concept. If, if God wants someone healed, of course, he could just heal them. But he quite often chooses to use your prayers. If he wants to provide for someone's needs, he uses your prayers. If he wants someone to be saved, he uses your prayers. And think about it. These are all things that are under God's sovereign control, his plan. And again, he does not need us to accomplish any of it. But, but for instance, if God knows that, that he's going to, to save Jane Smith over here. Right, and then he, he, he puts it on your heart for you to pray for Jane Smith and her salvation. And then, and then he indeed saves Jane Smith. What happens? Well, you, as the praying person, give glory to God. You give glory to him for what he has done and accomplished. And then, and then you go and excitedly tell others, even Jane Smith, I was praying for you, Jane. I can't believe it. This is great. I, did you know, have you been praying for Jane? I was praying for, yeah, I was praying for Jane too. All this glory goes to the Lord. He is glorified and exalted in, in, in just a, a magnified kind of way. And this could be said of anything that we might choose to pray to God over. From the small to the great, all being used by God to again advance his kingdom and save those that he will save. As we just learned in the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe the last question to consider here in the area of prayer is, is how might I cultivate this attitude of prayer in my life so that I am indeed praying without ceasing? And in one sense, you know, it's the Nike slogan, right? Well, you just do it. I mean, just do it. But as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, we also, though, recognize that we have to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And in this case, Prayer. In other words, sometimes habits have to be formed. Your time in the Word will obviously be a big contributor. Coming out on Wednesday evening to the prayer meeting would be another help there. Also, well, I remember this in seminary, we had a prayer class. I've shared this with some of you. But in our prayer class, uh, one of the requirements was that we actually had to, oh, guess what? Pray. We had to pray an hour a day. You could split it up into two 30-minute segments, but you couldn't split it up more than that. And talk about, talk about just wow, changing things in your life. My goodness. My goodness. But you have to start putting some of these things into practice, and you have to start creating some disciplines for yourself because some of us are not very naturally disciplined, huh? The point is, prayer should become as natural and even second nature to you as eating and drinking. We don't or shouldn't have to remind ourselves. We just sense when it's time to do it, and then we do it. So, just do it. Just pray. 
Just pray. Pray without ceasing. Number three, give thanks in everything. Give thanks in everything. This is verse 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's just start with the second half of that verse first. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And yet we always want to ask that question, don't we? What is God's will for me? I don't know what God's will is. How do I figure it out? What does God want me to do? I don't know. Friends, he couldn't be more explicit than right here. Right? Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks in all things, in everything. As God's will actually refers to all three of the previous admonitions... That is, it is God's will for believers in Christ Jesus to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. This is his will for you. And it's just as simple as that. The question is, is again, will we put these three things into practice? Okay, so let's, let's go back to this third admonition and what it means to in everything give thanks. And you think, okay, is this a trick question? Uh, you know, this in everything. Um, yeah, no, it just means that in everything. Uh, the word is pass. It means all, all. Okay. Oh, okay. So that means then I should be thankful when bad things happen to me. Yes, yes. This is where Romans 8.28 kind of meets up with us, right? And we know that God causes all things to work together for what? Good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, meaning all things. The good, the bad, and the ugly, right? All of it for our good, ultimately. So yes, even with what we perceive as being bad or negative, those trials, the sufferings, the difficulties that we encounter in life, these will ultimately work out for your good and God's glory, therefore we can be thankful for them. And we learned earlier that joy and therefore thankfulness should be in our hearts when we encounter and are distressed by various trials because of the good things these trials produce in us. After learning that King Darius had just made a new law prohibiting anyone from worshiping any god but the king himself, and that if you were to disobey that law, it would mean certain death. In Daniel 6 and verse 10, it says, Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees Three times a day, let's just put in parentheses, right, in defiance of this law, praying and doing what? Giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. And we know what happened to Daniel, right? Thrown into a den of chihuahuas. I had circus clowns first. I thought, no, I'll go with chihuahuas. No, of course, lions. Then I started thinking, well, chihuahuas, man. I've met some chihuahuas. It could be worse than going into the den of the lions, right? To look at this in reverse, Romans one twenty one tells us that 
unthankfulness is part of what characterizes an unbeliever. Speaking about the unregenerate, Paul says, for even though they knew God, meaning they knew God through general revelation and their own consciences, they did not honor him as God or what? Give him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. But for the saved, part of that regenerating work of God is the thankfulness that would be, should be characteristic then of our Christian walks. Colossians 3 and verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Colossians 2 verses 6 to 7 tells us, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now Excuse me, being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, overflowing with thankfulness. And of course, right there is is the, the greatest reason for being thankful that Jesus has saved you from your sin and its consequences. Again, namely, eternal death, punishment, hell the lake of fire. In Psalm chapter 136, verses 1 to 3, we have that classic text, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, what can you and I do to cultivate this habit? First, I might suggest that you, you set up some very specific times each day to give thanks to God. How about if you just did it when you wake up, when you go to bed, and how about at meals? That's four to five right there, right? Good, easy ways to just stop and get, thank you, God, for just waking me up, for giving me breath. Thank you, God, for the day. Thank you, Lord, for my food. Maybe you think of other things to thank him for at mealtime. Then begin to find all of those times in between those times that you can be thankful. Maybe it's when you look at something that, that, that brings you joy. When I, was, when I was writing this, I'm in my office. I love the fact that I got this window. I just, I just love to just look out the window every now and again. And I look out and I saw blue sky and I saw the mountains and I saw some palm trees. Yeah, then you see the roof of Pickwick, and you know, okay, that's fine. I'll take that too if I got to have the other. Now, if I could see the LA River, that might be even kind of, eh, I don't know. But anyway, and I was just like, oh, perfect. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you just for that little view that you blessed me with. <laughs> so, so there you go. Find those things, something that, that, that brings you joy, or maybe you encounter a person that you love, a good friend, or even family member, or somebody from the church, right? that you care for, that you enjoy. Maybe there's a circumstance in your life that takes place that just pleases you. It just pleases you. Next, train yourself to be thankful for the simplest of things and, and those things that maybe you do take for granted. Start helping, asking God to help you identify simple things. Things that you do, again, take for granted. Maybe even just putting on a warm jacket or something like that or or, or gosh, even right now, still having some of the freedoms that we enjoy, again, with some of the things that are going on out there in the world. 
And finally, start to then teach yourself, train yourself to be thankful in those difficult times and in the times of suffering and in the times of trial, knowing again that God is using all of these things for your good, for your good. Believe it. Well, the next five, we're going to just go a little more quickly through. Those are kind of three of the biggies right off the bat. Next, number four, don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Verse 19. In Ephesians 4 and verse 30, Paul says something similar. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Going back to quench, though, quench literally means to extinguish or put out. The complete word study dictionary of the New Testament tells us figuratively it means to dampen, hinder, repress, as in preventing the Holy Spirit from exerting His full influence. Kind of like we talked about in our opening illustration. It's that, it's that, loose, that loose, uh, loose wire kind of thing. When you go camping and you, you know, are going to be at this campsite for more than a day, you have your fire pit and you generally make fire in the evening and oftentimes in the morning. But um, you know, if you're putting it out at night, you don't want to completely waterlog it. You don't want to just take a big bucket and whoosh, down on it because it's going to be harder to start in the morning. So you just use little bits of water and you sprinkle water on it, just little amounts, so it starts to dampen it. It starts to quench it. It gets less and Less, oftentimes there can even be coals that are still kind of not completely extinguished, even ones that will burn throughout the night. But yet the idea is that we can quench things. And while the Holy Spirit is always living and dwelling in us, He never removes Himself from us. We can quench, dampen, repress, extinguish the Holy Spirit by not listening to Him. By not listening to him. I remember as a kid, uh, I used to love to take our, my bike and my friends and we'd make jumps. You know, have you ever make jumps and you just go sailing off the jump? And one day I wanted to go off this one jump and my dad told me, don't go off that jump. It's too high and, and the, the guys that are making it, it's just not going to be good. And you're going to get hurt and whatever. Oh, what do you think I did? Of course. I went off the jump. As I'm flying off the jump, this guy on a bicycle crosses right in front of me, smack, hit him. We both go down, and I get up, and I look over, and my dad is in his car leaving for work, and he's pulling out. And he gets out of the car, grabs my bike in the trunk, get in the car. You know, and, and of course, these things happen because I chose not to listen to him. I disobeyed him. I did what he told me I shouldn't do anyway. And friends, the Holy Spirit is there inside of you and I to sanctify you and to help you and to guide you and protect you and to inform your conscience and to convict you of sin and to illuminate the word of God for you in your life so you know what God's will is. And when we choose not to listen and heed the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, we quench the Spirit and when we sin, we grieve the spirit so how are we not to do this well ephesians 5 18 tells us be filled with the spirit galatians 5 25 tells us to live and walk by the spirit simply put excuse me simply put listen to the spirit through the word of god and do what obey shocker huh 
Shocker. It's not, it's not, it's not rocket science, gang. It's just not. I know it's tough for us though sometimes, isn't it? Number five, number five, don't hold the word of God in contempt. This is uh, verse 20. Do not despise prophetic utterances or gifts. Now, back in Bible times, these prophetic utterances could be understood in the sense of prophets prophesying. They could be speaking things about the future and what was to, to come. Um, they could have that gift of prophecy or sharing new revelation from God because, again, they didn't yet have, have the completed word of God in Bible form. And it can also be just simply speaking forth the word of God can also be understood as prophesying. And it can be done by any believer. Paul was actually one who was despised for his prophetic utterances, not by the Thessalonians, but certainly by the Corinthians, as he remarked in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Oh my goodness. The question is, is why would Paul feel the need to tell the Thessalonian church not to despise or hold in contempt the word of God? Because, of course, there were those who did despise, would despise, and maybe encourage others to despise the word of God. Why would they do this? Who knows? For some, it might have been jealousy. Why does he get to prophesy? Man, I want to prophesy. I'm I'm not listening to him. You know, it should be me doing that. You know, and you get jealous over the gifts. For others, it might have been, uh, you know, a way to make a buck because if they showed up at the church in doing so, they had to first convince the church that what they had uh, previously been taught by Paul or any of the apostles was bunk, was garbage, and then they start offering up their prophetic utterances, right? And in what they end up doing is despising the true prophetic utterances the teachings that had been taught to them. And these would then be, uh, as we read in Romans 1.18, those who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And then down in verse 25 of Romans 1, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And of course, we have to again remember that the Thessalonians, uh, the church, they had limited knowledge. They had what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were able to impart them, but again, they didn't have Bibles back then. So, so though it's possible they had the Old Testament scriptures, uh, like in their in their synagogues, all of this to say, though, they were in a, a difficult position where they had this somewhat limited knowledge and needed to be on guard against prophetic heresies. But they also had to be careful not to deny what was truly God's word given by those who were prophesying. Now, for us today, of course, with the cessation of those sign gifts, things like prophecy and tongues and healing, we still have to be careful not to hold the word of God in contempt. And I think where we see this most in the evangelical church is from those people and churches that kind of want to pick and choose what they want to believe from the scriptures. And it typically starts right there at Genesis 1 and what they believe to be true about Genesis 1. And, and then they, you know, well, let's, uh, you know, I don't really think it's, ta- it's not really correct about roles of men and women because we certainly see different things out there in society and human sexuality whoosh, out the, and gender whoosh, out the, you know, 
and on it goes. These then are those despising prophetic utterances. Number six, carefully examine the word. Verse 21. This goes right along with not despising prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Go ahead for just a quick moment. Turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. Keep your bookmark there, First Thess. And go back to Acts 17. This is right uh, when Paul and Silas, also known as Silvanus, knew they decided to uh, get out of Dodge, meaning Thessalonica, because the heat had gotten turned up after the locals um, were on a tirade and they went after their friend Jason because the, the apostles were staying at his house. And at Acts 17, look at verse 10. Acts 17, 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Let me just put in parentheses here. He's referring to the opposition in Thessalonica, not the church. He's not saying, you know, Paul loved the Thessalonian church, right? So now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And of course, this would be in reference to the Old Testament, because that's the scriptures that they primarily had. So, friends, as the elders, we are constantly, carefully examining the word, and not just the word, but when we hear things out there that you know, sound strange to us, or strange teachings, or new doctrines, or, or you know... People that try and, and offer some strange interpretations or misapplying the word. We also carefully examine these things as well. And we weigh them up against the scripture to understand and see what is true and what is not. And here's the thing. We want to encourage all of you to be like the Bereans and carefully examine even what we teach you. To make sure that it is true and accurate. And if you ever come up with anything that doesn't sound right to you. You've taken the time. You've waited against scripture. It doesn't kind of seem to be making sense. Something that we have shared. Either from the pulpit or in a classroom or what have you. Then you need to come and talk with us please. And for our part we give you our word that we will humbly examine. Re-examine even our own teaching and preaching, to make sure that it is so. Now I'm going to combine our last two here, uh, seven and eight. Hold fast to good, abstain from evil. In verse 21b, it says, hold fast to that which is good. And then verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Hold fast, meaning to possess, to retain, abstain. We also saw back in chapter 4, verse 3, abstain from sexual immorality. It means to hold uh, off, hold back from, avert. In Romans 12 and verse 9, uh, Paul tells us, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. In other words, repel evil, hold tight to what is good. And of course, we just had last week, uh, um, Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And I think the, the question we need to ask is, how do we know what is good and what is evil? Because 
Here's the deal. We might try and justify all kinds of things as being good for us when they're really not. When they're really not. We might even justify them by saying, well, they're not evil. So they must be good. They must be good. Well, I might say that an In-N-Out double-double is good for me. It has the four food groups, I believe. And uh, so it's good. But here's the thing. If I choose to eat double-doubles for breakfast, lunch, and dinner until the Lord returns, that might not be so good for me. It can be good to let your body soak up some good old vitamin D from the rays of the sun, but too much is going to give you cancer. It's funny that we don't kind of do the reverse here, huh? And say to ourselves, well, uh, if something's not good, then it must be evil. No, we don't usually do that. Because, well, there's that thing that I love. Yeah, I know it might not be best for me, but, well, it's not really evil, you know. And that's because we want to keep that thing that we love close to us. Because we might decide at some point, well, yeah, I can put it on the good list, right? And we do when it's not really good. First, friends, we need to know what God considers good and evil according to his word. Of course, you need to look to the scriptures to tell you this. And then you may also need to understand what's good and evil in the context of even, say, moderation. Because even something good, as we just said, can still control you. And it can become evil. As in 1 Corinthians 16, 12. When Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So we can't be mastered by it, even if it's something that we perceive as being good. You may also consider what is good versus evil in regard to your Christian liberties. What may be good for you is not necessarily going to be good for a brother or sister in the Lord, right? And therefore, so as not to cause a brother or sister to stumble, then you are going to say no to that even which may be good for you. And what this all adds up to, just to kind of nutshell this now or summarize this, it's about having spiritual discernment. Being spiritually discerning. Being able to rightly understand if something is good and should be clung to or if something is evil and should be repelled. Hebrews 5 and verse 14 tells us, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You and I need to train our senses to discern good from evil. So what we have seen in these eight surefire sanctifiers is is just that. It's all about our sanctification. Last week, helping to sanctify others and now focusing in on ourselves that we would be sanctified. And and yes, we recognize this is not a, a perfect process, right? But that rather we are a work in progress. But what's important there is that we work at it. Yes, God is sanctifying us, but then the flip side of that coin is that we have a responsibility, right, to um, be faithful and obey God. C.S. Lewis wrote, and I'll close with this. He said, we are all under construction. Naturally, there's unfinished lumber showing here and there, protruding nails and unsightly scaffolding, but it's still clear that a work is in progress. That the builder, capital B, has committed himself to bringing this building into conformity 
with the blueprint that, of course, he has designed, end quote. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for just, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have begun this good work in us that we know you will complete. And as we go through life and Walk the walk, and I pray that we would be filled and walk in the Spirit, Lord. We recognize that you are molding and shaping us and changing us and conforming us into the image of your Son. And then there's this responsibility, the Lord, that we then have to put these things that you have shared with us this morning into practice. I pray we would do just that. And Lord, I also pray for any here that need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they will confess and repent of their sins, even right now, even in their own hearts while we are praying, that they would pray pray that prayer of of seeking your forgiveness. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.